0: You're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the Channel 4 Medical Professionals. It is 2007 and America knows firsthand the devastating effects of experiencing national disasters from the World Trade Center to Hurricane Katrina to the Oklahoma bombings. But two people can experience the same event. One is able to cope, recover, go on with their life reasonably well, and another person can suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome or bouts of depression and never again get their life back on track. Is genetics a factor? Well, we'll find out. Welcome today to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host. And with me today is Dr. Larry Robbins, Assistant Professor of Neurology at Rush Medical College and Director of the Robbins Headache Clinic in Northbrook, Illinois. Dr. Robbins has been included in America's Top Doctors for many years, as well as Chicago's Top Doctors, and welcome to the show, Dr. Robbins.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me back.
0: This is just an incredible topic. What types of personal problems usually occur, first of all, after an individual experiences a traumatic event like 9-11?
1: Well, it varies all over the place. Some people are very well protected from even severe trauma. And some people, even trivial trauma, will send them into severe anxiety and depression and acute or chronic stress reactions. And I think that what determines it is the underlying brain chemistry and genetics that we can predict how somebody will do.
0: Now, this isn't just limited to people who actually experience the event firsthand, is it?
1: No. What we saw with 9-11 was a wide variety of reactions. For most people's lives, it was... A relatively minimal stressful event as opposed to severe abuse or ongoing sexual trauma or long standing severe divorce situation. This was a one time event that some people were not affected by it. Other people had what we call an acute stress disorder. Some people actually have had PTSD from the event. Most people just had either minimal anxiety or an exacerbation of their anxiety and depression for a few weeks.
0: Now, do you think or would you care to comment on the role the media might have had in this? Because although I'm not questioning the validity of it, there were people in far away from New York City, but they watched those planes go into those buildings again and again and the people jumping. And I think it could be a factor in terms of maybe their reaction was deeper than if it was in, they weren't glued to the television.
1: Well, absolutely. I think that 60 years ago we didn't have the constant images. And I don't think it's a media problem. They're just reporting the news. But people who have any tendency towards anxiety or depression or react to stress really need to turn the channel to get it off and not watch it over and over. Because part of an acute stress reaction, which is really a... Uh, a limited form of post traumatic stress disorder. It, acute stress lasts up to four weeks, is recurring images flashing in your mind. And the more people watched it on TV, the more likely they were to get into that.
0: Now, what is acute traumatic stress disorder? Didn't we really not begin to define it until after the Vietnam War, or that's when we started hearing more and more about it? Is that right?
1: PTSD or post traumatic stress was called different names in different wars, but they've, back to the Middle Ages, they talked about it, and certainly the Civil War and World War I, but it was viewed as uh, the fault of the person and a psychological weakness, and people with PTSD were not treated very well by uh, superiors and generals and people back at home. But now we recognize that a short version of it is acute stress disorder, which lasts up to four weeks, and people have a reaction to a severe stress with fright, with helplessness, They have a feeling of detachment. Sometimes they get derealization, depersonalization reactions, amnesia. They get these intrusive thoughts and pictures, flashes of the stress. They're very hyper-aware, hyper-vigilant. Their whole nervous system is just really keyed up. And to be diagnosed as an acute stress reaction, they have to have impaired functioning. It can't just be mild. And we treat it with the usual therapy, sometimes with medicine. But when it's longer than a month it's post-traumatic stress disorder. And if it's longer than three months, it's chronic PTSD. And I think that there's a lot of variables that go into who develops this, mostly genetic and how resilient they are, but also how severe and long-lasting the stress was.
0: Now, in a moment, we'll get into the resilience, which I really want to talk about, but then you're saying it can be this post-traumatic stress disorder really can be successfully treated with drugs?
1: Medicines help. Therapy helps. Different types of therapy, mostly cognitive, behavioral, but the EMDR, the eye movement therapy, has been used successfully for PTSD. And the drugs tend to be the usual drugs, the short-term, the benzodiazepines sometimes, but mostly it's the SSRIs, the newer antidepressants, and sometimes the SNRIs too. And if those don't work, sometimes the older MAOIs have been utilized very successfully in PTSD. I think that MAOIs We only have two left here in the United States, and phenylzine is a milder one. Nardil is the trade name, uh, are probably underused. We used to use these quite a bit, but because of the side effects, et cetera, we probably underuse these at, at this point.
0: I never hear about them anymore.
1: Occasionally, we use them for severe headaches, for refractory depression, but I think that MAOIs, there are some people who only respond to that class of medicine.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on REACH MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Larry Robbins, and we are discussing experiencing traumatic stress and resilience. Dr. Robbins, not everybody who experiences a traumatic event reacts the same. We've seen that. So let's begin to get into how does resilience play a role?
1: Well, resilience is a fascinating topic. You can look at resilience in individuals, which we'll talk about mostly, but also it's been looked at in couples, in families, how they react to a stress. Sometimes a difficult 11- or 12-year-old kid will basically ruin a family where the other kids are become dysfunctional and ping-pongs around the family. And in other families, they react very well. You can look at actually at resilience in corporations, and I'm interested in also in countries, how resilient countries and societies are. But in individuals, I think that there's a a definite genetic biological basis, and it's genes and the environment really mixing. And I think that there's been some elegant experiments demonstrating this
0: that's the key there. Tell us more about how this has been defined genetically, why one person can be in a burning building and come out of it, and they're traumatized, but they cope, and the same person, the same sibling or family member can come out of that same building and be scarred for life. What's some of the genetics behind it? What have they found?
1: Well, one of the genetic factors is the serotonin transporter gene, which is crucial in resilience. There's two arms to the serotonin transporter gene, two alleles. There's a long arm and a short arm. And it turns out if you're born with two long arms, you're pretty well protected. You can have abuse as a kid, but usually you'll be fine. You may have depression or anxiety, but you'll be functional. You may have minimal depression if you have two long arms. If you have a long and a short arm, the short arms aren't good. If you have a long and a short arm, it can go either way. And uh, if you have two short arms, it's really bad. If you have abuse as a child or severe stress as a child that goes on, Uh, Your life will usually be a mess with severe depression, sometimes personality disorder characteristics, non-functioning, and you can predict how people are going to do based on the long arm and the short arm. Interesting, there's ethnic differences too. Whites are a little more likely to have short arms, so maybe less resilient. About 17% of whites have two short arms, which is really not good. But where the environment comes into play, if you're born with two short arms, which is not good, but you don't have stress and you have a pretty good childhood, you may very well get through scot-free and do very well in your life. So the environment has to express the gene also. And they've looked at this in very elegant monkey trials. We share maybe 96% of genes with the monkeys. And they've looked at monkeys with the two long arms who had bad childhoods. They raised the monkey's. They take away the mom right away, and then they're raised by their other peers, by the adolescents. And with the two long arms, the monkeys do pretty well. They're not that anxious. They're not borderline-y. They're not biting and angry and hostile. If they have a long and a short arm, they're much more likely to be anxious, irritable, biting. And I have there's not many monkeys with two short arms, but I have seen other experiments where they looked at monkeys with, the short arms, and raised by the other adolescents. And they really looked like a borderline personality disorder, human, with biting and anger and hostility, and they didn't cope well at all with stress. So you, what they did was they prospectively manipulated the monkey environment, looking at the serotonin transporter gene as a basis for resilience.
0: Now, what's the name of the allele that they found, and how did they ever come across this? Did it begin with people, or did it begin with monkeys?
1: Well, it's interesting. I think it was first in people. The breakthrough came in 2003 when several doctors, Dr. Moffitt and Caspi, published a paper in Science about the gene, which is 5-HTT, that I believe I've heard referred to mostly as the serotonin transporter gene, and they did identify that the different forms of the gene are causing depression depending on whether it's a short arm or a long arm. And they looked at it in terms of childhood stresses and maltreatment.
0: You mentioned some of the other studies that were done, and I know they looked at sexual abuse. Have they looked at any, are you aware of any studies where they looked at victims of trauma or something equally you know, national and devastating, and they found different reactions? I'm thinking of firefighters in New York. I'm thinking of people that were in the World Trade Center or Katrina, or have they not gotten into that realm?
1: That has been looked at and studied reasonably well. I think one of the best articles that I've read on it was in a lay publication in the New York Times. It was April 30th of 2006, and it was a wonderful story on resilience. The title was A Question of Resilience by Emily Bazelon. B-A-Z-E-L-O-N, and in this article, she really goes over what happens with two children who had severe abuse where one ended up reasonably well and one did not, and it was based on the serotonin transporter gene. And I think it answers why even twins, fraternal twins, can have severe, severe abuse as children, and one ends up pretty good and the other life is incredibly dysfunctional, and I think you can almost predict it based on the shape of their gene.
0: Going back a little more in history, do you think this explains, and I know those of us of my age certainly know examples from this of guys that were in Vietnam. Many of them were subjected to some pretty ferocious things they had to take part in, things that devastated them for life, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and also just really personality disorders. Some people that came back were tremendous. And then other people came back and... Maybe they had the ability to block it out or deal with it, and and they, they came back to a pretty normal life.
1: Well, absolutely. I think several things happened with Vietnam. We didn't recognize PTSD as well. It wasn't treated as well. The, the soldiers were not treated particularly well by some segments of the population when they came back. So we had a lot of drug abuse and alcohol, not enough therapy. But a lot does depend on somebody's chemical makeup, their predisposition. But also with, with war, it seems as if the intensity of the combat and the amount of months, the amount of time being under the stress and the trauma.
0: So we've had Dr. Robbins here today. He's been our guest when we've been discussing the resilience factor in experiencing traumatic stress. I'm Dr. Shera Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email on this or any segment to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you as always for listening.